Today, what we're going to do is look at um, a verse that I think summarizes essentially what it is to be a Christian throughout history. I'd like to look at our, our people, the history of our people, going back to the Exodus and, and, and through history, how persecution has always worked as a kind of fertilizer. If, if you want the church to grow, add persecution. I don't know why uh, the, the, the machinations of the nations, the principalities and powers of the air have not yet figured this out. I'm glad they haven't figured this out because every time you persecute us, we get stronger, we get faster, we get better. So if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to be talking about verse 12, but in order to do that, we have to look at kind of the broader story. So we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. 8 through 11 first, just to find out what is going on in the land of Egypt. We read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom, and Ramses. Now, that's the context, okay? And the next verse is the verse that we all ought to memorize. We ought to uh, write on cards and post in our homes, something we ought to pray over with our families. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Moses and uh, the the hours he spent with you in the tent of meeting, Lord, to learn about the history of Israel, that he could record it for us. We thank you for Israel, uh, Old Testament Israel, those um, bookshelf people, as as Augustine called them, Lord, who carried forth the word of God and delivered it into the hands of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of Pharaoh and his good work, Lord, in spreading your kingdom, in the lesson to us that even those who hate you are in your hands and you direct their hearts and their actions and all human history. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and amen. Now, if you go back and you look at verses 8 through 11, what you see is that in the intervening centuries, Israel has prospered. Israel has not stayed small. There was only 70 some odd people who came out of the, of, uh, uh, the, the, from their wanderings into Egypt, 70 people, and now there's a massive multitude. There's a huge multitude. They've clearly understood their mission in life, which is to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, and what is their reward for fulfilling the creation ordinance to be fruitful and multiply? What is it? What is their reward? God looks down upon them and says, good job, guys. Here is some accusation, some slander, and some affliction. (laughs) And this tends to be always, always what happens to God's children. If you turn with me to Job, we turn to the wisdom literature. We turn to Job chapter 1. If you look at verses 6 through 12, we're going to look at another faithful son of God who received the same kind of treatment. And hopefully what emerges to us is a pattern. (laughs) Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now this is called the divine council. If you'd like to know more about that, talk to Joel. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then what happened? He goes to work on Job. Have you considered my perfect son, my obedient son, my loving son? Have at him. Because what what was God anticipating? God was anticipating that he had raised his son well. This, This is what it's like to launch our children into the world. I would like to stand there on the day that they're leaving, wave at them and say, good luck world. Have at them. Have at them. Because if I've raised them in the fear and admonition of the Lord like I was commanded to do, I ought not fear what Satan is going to attempt to do to them. And and that is the kind of confidence standing on the promises of God that God again and again and again demonstrates in raising his own children. We see it again in Matthew chapter 4. Turn there with me now. Matthew chapter, oh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3. I always get this part confused. Matthew chapter 3, you look at verse 14, and what do we see there? We see a father who's launching his son into the world on his mission. It says in verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you, do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wait, what? <laughs> this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased? Hey, Satan, have at him? Hey, Satan, have at him. Do you see a pattern emerging here? So Exodus, that great story of God's love and deliverance, begins with this. Hey, Pharaoh, have you considered my son Israel? They have been obedient. They have fulfilled my commandments. They are thriving, and I would like you to have at them. Now, the Reverend George Grant, the most learned brother in the PCA down in Tennessee, he wrote this about the history of persecution. He said, long ago, the Apostle Paul asserted, all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. There is no way around it. Persecution is inevitable. Throughout church history, believers have suffered persecution and obscurity. They have been beaten and ridiculed, defrocked and defamed. They have suffered poverty and isolation, betrayal and disgrace. They have been hounded, harassed, and murdered. The heroes of the faith have always been those who sacrificed their lives, their fortunes, their reputations for the sake of the gospel. Indeed, persecution and martyrdom have been among 
the church's highest callings and greatest honors. <laughs> Remember what was read for us today in Acts? The apostles came away from their beatings rejoicing and thanking God that they were considered privileged, privileged enough, gracious. God was so gracious to them. God loved them so much that he would let them be beat for the gospel. Why? What, what is it about our troubles? What is it about our suffering in the hands of God's enemies that makes it an honor and a high calling? Why is suffering a part of God's strategy to overcome the world? Why? <laughs> Happy Reformation Day. <laughs> in the very beginning, was that what he intended? Did he intend for us to suffer in order to bring about his purposes? No. No, there in the garden at the very beginning, we said, you know what, God, this seems like a decent plan. Sitting around in this garden eating fruit naked with my wife, this seems pleasant, lovely, we could go on forever. Or we can choose suffering. And so Adam was like, let's go with suffering. God was like, okay, let's do it. And then that has been his strategy from the very beginning. I don't know who originally said it, but Doug Wilson says, you know, the ch church history is essentially God's victories cleverly disguised as defeats. And I think that that's true. I think that that is true. Now, I want to look at this text for a second because this, this is what we have to consider. When we consider our own lives, we consider the pharaohs and our, and our own nation and what we're up against in the culture and what we're up against in the government and what we're up against at, at universities and what we're up against at, at um, Trader Joe's, for goodness sakes. Why is it that we suffer? What is the point? Well, let's look at the story here, and let's see how much their story is similar to our own. First off, the government of Egypt seeks to oppress a threat. They see a threat. But what is the threat? The text says that the nation of Israel within Egypt has grown strong and numerous. God has blessed them because of his promises, and that makes them a threat to Pharaoh. Israel has been faithful to God's command to be fruitful and multiply, and so God has blessed them according to Genesis 17, 5 through 7. So the first thing to understand is that being faithful and little, God calls Israel to something greater, something higher, something holier, something more blessed. And that is a greater amount of suffering. <laughs> and I giggle because I just, I have a hard time. It's, what, really? You're going to take your fruitful sons. You're going to take your happy sons. You're going to take your sons who are obedient. And their reward is more suffering. And the Bible comes back again and again and again. Yes, yes, that is the story. Now, the next thing we see is that the Egyptians are persecuting Israel under the pretense of national security, okay? And, and I, I like using language like this when we're talking about Exodus because it really helps us, I think, understand the story. Well, these people living amongst us now are a threat to us because if another nation comes and attacks us, Israel will join them and, and our nation, we will lose it. Right? When the tanks come rolling in, they will come out with their pitchforks and join the, the, the invading nation, and, and we will suffer at their hands. Now, there's no merit at all. They've been living there for four centuries, I think, at this point. They, they have never demonstrated anything but loyalty to the nation in which they live. They're good Christians. They're like the exiles. They, they are there to serve the nation in which God has planted them, the garden in which they've been planted. Their, their purpose is, is like Adam, to be fruitful and multiply there, and they've been obedient in that. They have never been a threat to Egypt. Who is a threat to who? Right? This is always what 
pharaohs do. They say, oh, you know what? You're a real threat to us. And let me demonstrate that by now attacking you. And you're like, wait, that logic doesn't add up. And how often is this, right? Hitler in invaded Poland in order to defend Germany from Poland. Ukraine has been invaded by Russia in order to defend Russia from Ukraine. Now, I'm not, I, I'm pro-Ukrainian in one sense. I am not pro-Ukrainian government, believe me. The civil war that's coming after the war with Ru Russia is going to be terrible. But I'm telling you right now, th this pretense of we're going to invade you to protect ourselves is something that tyrants have always used. And that's what's happening to them here, right? <laughs> now, all of this threat that we have from, from Mexi the Mexican border, I would not stand up and say, listen, what we ought to do is just invade Mexico and take it over. We've got to protect ourselves. I'd be like, how about we build a giant wall first, okay? How about we build a giant wall and put mines? I mean, I, I love this one. I tried to write a paper about this in college, and they were not having it. It's like, well, let's just put a minefield across the entire thing. <laughs> I, it seems like, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of a war hawk conservative raised by a war hawk conservative, so sometimes I think of these terrible ideas. But who is attacking who? It, okay, progressives in this country always say, listen, this is what you're doing, and this is what you're doing, and you're doing this. And, and if you actually stop and think about what they're accusing us of, they're the ones doing it, right? Who, who is opposed to, to, to sexual ethics? Who is opposed to life? I'm opposed to life because I don't want abortions, and yet I, ought, I do think murderers ought to be put to death. How, how did you work that out on CNN? See, one commentator explains what's really going on. Pharaoh was after control. He did not want them to be in a position to threaten his regime. He did not want to be rid of them because they were a good source of cheap labor. Sound, like, sound familiar? He wanted to exploit them. Therefore, he adopted what was an inherently evil approach to the Israelites. He did not want to lose a valuable resource from the land or see the creation of a rival state to the north. Egypt is projecting onto Israel what itself is doing. Egypt is the enemy of Israel, not the other way around. This is a very common tactic. Here's a CNN article from January, July last year, 2022. This is what they had to say. White Christians, white Christian nationalists, and their beliefs have infiltrated the religious mainstream so thoroughly that virtually any conservative Christian pastor who tries to challenge its ideology risks the career, their career, says Kristen Kobes, the New York Times bestseller of here. This is, this is a book for you right here. This is a great title. Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. <laughs> Did we? Oh, I mean, someone fractured a nation. I get you, but it seems like you're doing the Pharaoh thing where you're, anyway. The article goes on to say, these ideas are so widespread that any individual pastor or Christian leader who tries to turn the tide and say, let's look again at Jesus and scripture are going to be tossed aside, she says. The ideas are also insidious because many sound like expressions of Christian piety or harmless references to U.S. history. But white Christian nationalists interpret these ideas in ways that are potentially violent and heretical. Their movement is not only anti-democratic, it contradicts the life and teachings of Jesus, some clergy, scholars, and historians say. Oh, do they now? Was that peer-reviewed? Expressions of Christian piety, harmless references to U.S. history, white nationalists, does this sound like anyone you know? Anti-democratic sentiments. 
which is true, actually. I mean, I'm all for democratic elections, but democracy is terrible. And it always has been, and I'm with John Adams on this one. But this is what they're doing. They're accusing us of what? Heresy, ideology that's destructive, ideology that's violent. I I'm sorry, who burned Chicago down as a, as, as a, a means to deal with police corruption? When I, when, I, right? when I think of police corruption, you know what I, I do? I post articles. I talk to people. I talk to the police officers I know. I write letters to people because police reform is something that this country desperately needs. You know what I didn't think to do was drive over to Linwood and burn an AMPM down. <laughs> but I mean, I, with my Christian piety and gentle references to U.S. history, am certainly a threat. <laughs> this is called power politics, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm going to now explain <laughs> something that Saul Alinsky figured out a long time ago, because Saul Alinsky was a student of Pharaoh. Saul Alinsky was a student of Hitler. Saul Alinsky was a student of all the tyrants who have ever lived. And Saul Alinsky, a shrewd political activist and community organizer, have you heard that term before? He wrote the 13 basic rules of power tactics. And it's been taught in, in uh, universities across the country, Harvard, Chicago, any Ivy League school, any massively progressive school, UCLA, this is what they teach in political science. My degree from Washington State University was in political science, and I remember being assigned articles by Saul Alinsky and, and papers about Saul Alinsky reading about how to do power politics. And I was like, oh, this will be helpful, actually. It's pretty good 13 rules. It's pretty good 13 rules. Alinsky influenced many young progressives in the United States, including young Barack Obama, who took him as his model, Saul Alinsky was the subject of Hillary Clinton's senior honor thesis at, Wells at Wellesley College. His rules are the progressive playbook. He's sort of the Martin Luther of the left. Now, Alinsky's, yeah, that was, there you go. Happy Reformation Day. Now, Alinsky's rules are discussed at length in Doug Wilson's book, Rules for Reformers. If you haven't read that book, men, you ought to. Read it out loud to your wives. Really spice things up. Rule number nine. According to Alinsky, the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. <laughs> Alinsky is saying that scaring people is the power play. The threat doesn't actually have to be real in any way, shape, or form. It just needs to be perceived as being severe. Now, does that sound like COVID emergency powers to anyone in the room? Yes, right? You're all going to die and you're going to kill grandma, you unrighteous, unclean person. Now, cover that face up and go home. In Egypt, the threat of Israel joining Egypt's enemies was more terrifying than the reality. There's no proof, historically or in Scripture, that Israel was ever going to unite with a foreign power against Egypt. I, I'm, I'm thinking at that point they probably considered themselves ethnically Jewish, but nationally Egyptian. Just like I'm ethnically British, but nationally I'm a Christian. I understand how this works. We're Scotch-Irish all the way down to our, to our toenails. Amen. But I am an American. I'm not, if the war broke out, I would not suddenly go back to Northern Ireland. Well, maybe in Northern Ireland. Anyway, I would not go back to Scotland anyway and fight for them. I, I, I seriously, this is so corrupt of what, uh, what Pharaoh is doing. Now, Rule 13 says pick a target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Okay, so here's Pharaoh making public speeches playing the power politics, isolating Israel as a personal threat to individual liberty and safety and freedom of every Egyptian, polarizing them as a nation within Egypt. Sounds a little bit like what Hitler did. 
right? If we don't stop the Jews, they will get us. Pharaohs are going to Pharaoh. This is what they do. Alinsky's rule number eight is keep the pressure on. We see this, in fact, that Egypt places taskmasters, industry experts, regulators over the nation of Israel and makes Israel build two industrial cities. And, and this is what I mean. They really, they're taskmasters, but, but what they're told to do is build an industrial city, build a smart city, and we're going to make sure that Bill Gates comes out there and, and, and watches you and make sure you do it according to the pl green plan. Right? And I understand this is Egypt, I understand this is the Exodus, but I want you guys to understand this. You're going to build two industrial cities, and what we're going to do is put regulators over the top of you to make sure that you're following all the rules. What size is that hammer? What kind of nails are those? At what, at what temperature does this material burn? <laughs> right? Think of how a smart city is built. Think of what is going on in Seattle. And there's Bill Gates' little hub. He's like a Bond villain. Right there in the middle of, of, of uh, the north end of town there, like a little hive of industry, making sure that everything is done according to whatever the green plan is that the World Economic Forum has come up with. And, and this is why I love scripture. If you, if you actually stop and think about what's being said, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, this is how power politics are played, intrusive observation, direct oversight, extremely difficult tasks to accomplish. Building two industrial cities is hard. The difficult tasks would keep Israel too busy to grow. There would be exhaustion, industrial accidents, hunger, little free time for pursuits other than work. But the more Israel is given to do, the more they do. Right? Everything that Pharaoh gives them to do, they get done. The more Israel is persecuted, the more they thrive. Because this strategy doesn't work. They, they, they keep going home. They, they keep producing children. They keep right, growing and the fruitful. And then they don't not finish the cities. They finish them. Okay, so now, okay, you, uh, we thought this would maybe kind of suppress you guys a little bit. But actually, you did that. It was pretty quick. It was pretty cool. Thank you. As one Bible commentator has written, as has happened many times in history, oppression has backfired, and rather than eliminating an unwelcome people or cause, has served to strengthen it. Pharaoh tried to achieve his purposes by intensifying the oppression, but to no avail. And I would describe that this is what the United States government has done in the homeschooling movement since the 70s. The more they've tried to oppress it, the more it's spread. There was some something crazy like 5,000 homeschoolers in 1978 or something like that, and now there's millions. And this is what people always do, they try, right? God, God takes the, the strategies that the evil and, and wicked people are going to try to do to suppress the truth and suppress goodness, truth, and beauty, and what he does is he turns it on its head, and he uses it as the very means to both bless his people and destroy his enemies, Okay, Pharaoh is going to go on to murder Israelite children, which brings about the salvation of Moses. <laughs> Moses is raised in his own house. Think about that. Would Pharaoh have ever gone out and said, hey, Moses, you know what? I'm going to give you a world-class education at Oxford. Come with me and figure out all the strategies necessary to defeat me in 40 years. Right? He never would have done that. But what he does do is he mur starts murdering Israelite babies and brings about raising the very person who's going to destroy his kingdom. 
Pharaoh's further persecution of Moses leads him into exile to arrive exactly where he ought to be to stand before the burning bush. Through Moses, God would destroy Egypt entirely, just as God prophesied in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, he said, listen, Abraham, your children are going to go into another country. They're going to be slaves there, but don't worry. I'm going to use that to destroy that nation. And, and what you see here, right, they haven't mentioned God so far in the book of Exodus, but is he working to bring about the thing he said he was going to do? And sometimes it seems like, wh- wh- where's God? Where is he? And what is he doing right now? Because it seems pretty bad down here. And what I like about the opening of Exodus is that he's there in the background all, all along doing exactly what he said he was going to do, and no one can stop him. And, and even those things that seem terrible to his own people are the very means for him to destroy one nation and save another. Israel is the reason that God reveals himself. God executes judgment and mercy to reveal himself as the Lord. This is what he has always done. This is what he tells Moses. He says, I'm going to do this to to Egypt because I want them to know who the Lord is. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to see that through persecution and martyrdom, this is always how God moves in his people and in history to bring about his purposes. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. We read this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and this is a following up on the story that we heard read for us this morning, right? They've been beaten. They've been told not to preach the, the gospel. And so they go back to their own people and they report what happened. And they heard it and they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there was gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the words of God with boldness. And what I want to point out here is that they go away from being persecuted and immediately make the connection to Jesus. We know everybody was gathered against Jesus in this city, just like they're gathered against us. And how did that work out for them? Right? They... They killed the king. And when they killed the king, they killed death. Their one weapon, the only weapon that they actually have against us, they themselves destroyed in this city. And so the apostles understand exactly the story they're in. Do you understand the story that you are in? Do you ever sit here and think, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're rallied around us. They're standing against us. And here in our little town of Linwood, here in King County, here in Snohomish County, here in this little place, Seattle, where we live, the very same thing is happening. 
they, by coming at us, are bringing about their own destruction and our blessing. There is nothing new under the sun. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. Now, the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of God. I'm sorry, let me go back, because I misread that entire thing. I know, Molly, I know. I'm sorry, what was I reading? 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they would have known what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. Do you think Pharaoh, if you go back and be like, hey, Pharaoh, listen, I hate to tell you this, but everything you're planning against Israel is going to bring about the absolute destruction of your entire people. He'd be like, no way. Yes way. Okay, but then we sit in our homes and we, we, our hairs are going gray and we're stressing out because we're like, you know... What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We live in a, in a society where you have to have two incomes. It's like, it's like building two industrial cities. It's very difficult to raise a family in this culture. We're, we're considered enemies of the state because we go to work and we pay our taxes. Right? And I'm not kidding. Like The National Security Agency had like this list of of how to recognize a, a radical American. And it was like all the things middle class white people do generally speaking. Get married, have kids, go to work, love your families, have barbecues on the 4th of July. And I remember reading this list and I was like, this is like me and all my friends. I was like, go team, right? Go team, we got on the news. Look at that. Spurgeon explains, God has not only baffled and utterly defeated all the inventions of wicked men, but he has turned their strange devices to good account for the development of his own sovereign purposes. He has made his enemies work for him, aiding the enterprise they eschewed. He has turned their curse into a blessing. He has made evil productive of good. He has extracted sweetness out of their bitter spleen and distilled healthful medicine out of their deadly animosity. Spurgeon really was a prince of preachers. Man, turn phrase, right? So have you ever, like, why is he blessing these wicked people? Well, because he's just hurrying up the process by which he destroys them and blesses you. But in, in my day or another day, right? Are you like the King Hezekiah? Is this going to happen in my day or another day? This terrible thing, right? I don't want to, uh. no, I, at some point, it may not be you, it may be your grandkids, but all of that stuff that we see that seems like the wicked are being blessed and prospered and everything's going well for them is going to bring about a destruction that, uh, even when I'll probably be in heaven when it happens, but I will be eating popcorn and having a good time. I mean, look at this. God will not be mocked. I had no idea that's what he was doing. The machinations of kings and the principalities of this world are part of God's glorious plan of salvation. It's a part of his plan. To quote the great and defiant third century Tertullian, if you don't know who he, who he is, look him up. He's the man. This is what he said. (laughs) He wrote this, uh, I think, to an emperor. We grow up in greater numbers the more we are mown down by you. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Have at us. He'd read Job. He'd read the Exodus. He read about Christ. He understood how this works. Our Father has sent us into this world. He's raised us right. And do your best. Do your best. Come on, mow us down. 
Within chapters of Acts 4, what happens? Stephen is martyred. The persecution headed by Paul begins the first spread of the gospel message beyond Judea. As the persecuted flee, they begin new churches and new cities. This was exactly what Christ wanted us to do. He commanded his apostles to preach the gospel to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. (laughs) And I would have loved if one of the disciples said, well, how are you going to get us from Judea to Samaria? How is that going to happen? I live in Judea. Uh, Am I supposed to send people? Oh, I'm going to go myself when I'm running away from Paul, who's trying to imprison and murder all of us, right? Jesus never said how it was going to happen, but he said, I want you to go out and preach the gospel, start here, and then you're going to spread out. And he he left out the part that the spreading comes through the persecution. So just like Pharaoh, right, he he goes through his plan. What happens? Egypt, Egypt loses Israel. Israel goes out, and they spread, right? And all of his persecutions and all of his machinations and all the things he's trying to do to, to, to suppress them actually causes them to grow. Charles Spurgeon, again, persecution has evidently aided the increase of the church by the scattering abroad of earnest teachers. We are very apt to get hived, too many of us together, and our very love of one another rents it difficult to part us and scatter us about. Persecution, therefore, is permitted to scatter the hive of the church into various swarms, and each of these swarms begins to make honey. We are all like the salt if we be true Christians, and the proper place for the salt is not massed in a box, but scattered by handfuls over the flesh which it is to preserve. Man, that guy could, that guy could use a word smith like nobody's business. Right? Well, I, have a, I, have a salt, I have salt in my... You know what I do is I, and I was thinking about that when I was writing this, I, not only do I spread it all over all, all kinds of things, my counter, my floor, and the meat, but I actually grind it in order to do that. And I was like, isn't this like the gospel? Be the salt of the earth, Himalayan salt of the earth here. Now, Luther's message in the Reformation era, this is how it spread. The more they tried to, to persecute Protestants, the more they tried to silence them, the more they tried to violently oppress them, the more it spread. The German Reformation spread to Switzerland, to France, to the Lowlands, to Poland, to Italy, to the English Isles. It eventually spread to a little place no one had ever heard of called Plymouth. Now, Richard Hanula, in a book called For Christ's Crown, it's a book you should all own and read annually, in my opinion, He writes this, as the persecution against Puritans increased, some decided to move to the wilderness of North America and plant a colony where they would be free to worship God as they saw fit. And it was Churchill, later in his four-volume history of the English-speaking people, which is fantastic, by the way, he said, and that, I had, right, that England needs to understand that that was how he was going to preserve England. Because those Puritans were going to make a nation, those Puritans were going to prosper, and those Puritans were going to build bombers that were going to come back here and save all of us from Hitler. And he saw in the spread of the gospel and the spread of Puritans to the new world as the salvation of the old world. And he saw it as the work of God. Yes, I said Winston Churchill. Now, Philip Henry, Heavenly Henry, if if you ever had a nickname, that would be the nickname, Heavenly Henry was his name. He was an English nonconformist. I'm not a nonconformist. I have problems with the nonconformists in one sense. But this kind of thing right here, this is my people. Uh, we can, you can have whatever form of church government you want if you're going to say things like this. To go back to my sermon from last week. 
Heavenly Henry said, I find afflictions and persecutions have been always the lot of the people of God. He said, but God has still upheld his church and will do it to the end. And this was his way of, uh, this, this was to find his whole ministry. His family, after he was threatened by the crown, they, they threatened him to stop preaching, stop preaching, and we're going to come and get you. Heavenly Henry, do you know what he said? He said this to his own family members, his own daughter. What were candles made for but to burn? What were candles made for but to burn? He died at the age of 67 from natural causes resting in his bed. He burned with zeal, unafraid of the martyr's pile. He was going to burn one way or the other. He was going to burn with zeal, or they're going to stack sticks around his feet and light them on fire. And he didn't care which. And such men are examples to us as how to overcome the left-handed soft tyranny of our own government. Alinsky's radical rules for power politics is the playbook of progressive overlords, those purveyors of an economy controlled by the central bank, requiring two incomes to participate in. It's like making bricks without straw. But it's okay, because the government is here to raise our children from the womb to the tomb to be good little rainbow flag-waving commies. Alinsky's rules are the zeitgeist of a federal government who pushes pills and poison masses food. You want to talk about a hard task? Try finding some real food. Right? I have to have two incomes. Just I, I was looking into buying like the real seeds. You know how there's like real seeds and then there's like the seeds I've had my whole life. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll get some of these like heirloom seeds everyone's talking about. And you can find them. But I, as a one-income family, I'm like, I see what they've done here. I see what they've done here. Right? They want me drinking Diet Coke and eating at McDonald's because it's convenient and cheap. But don't worry, you can have pot and Xbox and, and live streaming shows right in your own house. And Uber Eats is a thing now. And so, right, and because of my hard task, I'm going to do all these other things to make my life easy and have some kind of Sabbath rest in the midst of it all. And it just makes me more and more and more and more and more and more a slave. Tyrants are going to tyrant, okay? Pharaohs, Herods, Bloody Marys, Fauci's, Hillary Clinton's, they are going to detest God's people. They're going to conspire against God, and they're going to do so by conspiring against his people. Homicide is a result of deicide that dwells in the heart of man. We can't get our hands around God's neck, so we go to work on one another. That's what we do. This is what humanity does. The pharaohs of this world can't get their hands on Christ, and so they go to work on Christians. Because Christ is the threat to their throne. Christ is the threat to their worldview. Christ is the threat to everything they stand for. But they can't get him, can they? No, but they can get us. And so they'll come at us, right, and call us enemies because we still believe in basic science and biology. <laughs> Currently, we are in the part of the story, right, where they're trying to control us with taskmasters and affliction like Pharaoh, tried to control the church growing in the midst of Egypt with heavy labor and strict oversight. Candles, though, were made for burning. Candles were made for burning. Heavenly Henry, he didn't fear, he didn't fear the martyr's pyre. And so he burned with zeal. And we have to understand what were candles made for but to burn. Let us burn with zeal. Let us burn with the zeal of our heritage, the flame that has been handed down to us, the flame of the Holy Spirit. And, and if it leads to a martyr's pile, let us then at least light the way for coming generations. Because when I study the martyrs, that's what I find, 
right? It's like lighting the way, in, famously in Lord of the Rings, when they light the fires, Gondor lights the fires in order to get other nations to come, lighting the way. That's what I consider all the martyr's fires throughout history. I'm like, oh, I just follow this way then to heaven. And, and the roadmap is very easy. This is why rootless evangelicalism is something, right, this idea, this Darwinistic idea that we are the pinnacle of human history and, and it's invaded the church and we think that we are our own people with our own struggles in the modern time and the old world has nothing to do with it. And, and what we find actually lighting the way from glory to glory, from strength to strength throughout history are the pyres of the martyrs, lighting the way for us. What does faithfulness look like? What does fruitfulness look like? What does a godly life look like? What is our responsibility in this world? And I'm going to finish with this, because how else could you possibly finish this, but with the revelation that God gives us. But the more they were oppressed and the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. (laughs) Oh, were they now? Wait, I don't understand. Let's go back. How did they end up in... Everything everything is on their side. Everything seems to be in their hands. All the power seems to be in their hands. And what are they in dread of exactly? Exactly. Now, the same word is translated differently in various parts of the Old Testament. In Genesis 27, 46, and Numbers 21, 5, it's loathe. So there is some debate as to exactly what's being said here. Are they in dread of them? And I think there's a lot of connotation when we use the English word dread. I think loathe would be more accurate. But I think it's, it's, it's actually one of those Hebraic things where they have that combination of two, <laughs> where like they hate them, but they also are afraid of them. And that sounds like what tyrants are, right? They're afraid of them. Hitler feared the Jews and thus loathed the Jews and thus killed the Jews. Okay? Stalin loathed anyone who was opposed to Bolshevism he, and thus hated anyone who was opposed to it and so thus went to work on them. This is the appropriate designation of the feeling bad men experience when the opposite of their plans is wonderfully brought about by our sovereign God. The more they try to control us, and, and the less controllable we are under the current regime of progressivism, the less their power politics plays, works on us, the more in dread they will be of us. The more they'll be like, wait, something isn't working here. They're growing, we're not. They're fruitful, we're not. They're happy and joyous, and we're not. Right? I was, it's like, you see these articles. It's like, they've, it's, it's like they're the first human beings that ever lived. Do you know? I, I was reading... This was an article for women. If you stay married and only have sex with one man, you're actually happier than women who don't? And I was like, thank God someone wrote this article. (laughs) Finally, I have a purpose, and a a purpose for my ministry. Do you know, this is another article I read, men, if you actually play with your children, not only will will you be happier, they will be happier, and your wife will find you more attractive. I mean, I was like... I figured that out 20 years ago. Thank you. (laughs) And I love it. I love this. I I love going on the internet and finding these articles and these studies that come out. And I just think these these poor lost people, right? There's women now, there's feminists who think, who want to have social contracts. They want to have legal binding contracts in order to enter into a sexual relationship with a man. And I'm like, "Uh, your terms are acceptable to us. We'll take that all day long. It's called marriage. 
but you're, you're on the right path. Okay, MSNBC, <laughs> MSNBC on June 2nd, 2022, this is their tweet. They tweeted this. It's called X now, I guess, but whatever. They said, it's becoming increasingly clear that the United States is under siege by Christian fundamentalists and traditionalists. Yeah, and, and I'm telling, right? Isn't that, come on, guys, let's be honest. Isn't that how we feel? Don't we feel like we have them under siege? No, that's not how we feel. Are you joking? But MSNBC <laughs> says, look, we live in dread of these people. They're everywhere. They're all around us. They, right? I mean, what are we going to do? John Calvin here. Moses relates the contest between the mercy of God and the cruelty of the king of Egypt. When therefore the wretched Israelites were tyrannically afflicted, he says that God came to their aid and so powerfully that his interference was successful. Thus was that wicked and deceitful design frustrated, which the Egyptians had set on foot for destroying the church. Thence may we too conceive the hope that whatsoever the wicked imagine against us will come to naught. Because God hand, God's hand is greater. And God's hand shall prevail. But we must bear afflictions patiently, because he would have us struggle against it and rise under the weight imposed upon us, and because we know that it is the peculiar office of God to oppose himself to unjust counselors in order that they may not succeed, let us learn to abstain from all deceit and violence, lest we wantonly provoke God. But this passage is especially intended to console the believer that he may be prepared to take up his cross more patiently, since God is sufficient to supply the help to which the wrath of the wicked must finally yield. And so they feel under siege by us, but don't we typically feel under siege by them? And, and are we going about that with magnanimity, with equanimity, with gentleness and kindness and the fruits of the Spirit? Right? Or are, candles are made for burning. Or are we, right, lighting the way by lighting our hair on fire by reacting to whatever the local outrage is? Are we a calm people? Are we sitting there saying, you know what? Look at what they're trying now. Let's go to work, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis, he had this rousing sermon, and at the end of it, he goes, you know, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow's Monday. Right? The cross comes before the crown. So we sit here, and we get this broad eschatological vision of what's happening. Tomorrow morning is tomorrow morning, right? It's Monday, and your bosses, and your laundry, <laughs> and your chores, and your bills, and your pay, and your car, and your one income, and, <laughs> right, Everything will be the same as it was when you drove here this morning. The reason we do this, the reason we talk this way, the reason that we are taken out of ourselves for a moment into the heavenly courts to see the God who we are serving, the reason that he does that is so that we could go back into the world in which he has sent us, right? He, he, he brings us here and he says, you are my beloved children with whom I am well pleased. Now get going out there where you're going to be what? Attacked. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be made fun of. You're going to be laughed at. You're, you're going to have a difficult task to do. And the reason we keep coming back here is to remind us of who's really in charge. 
And that whatever is going on out there in your life is part of the plan. It's not opposed to the plan. It is the plan. (laughs) It is the word of God that we cling to because in it is revealed to us Christ. And I'm actually going to read two Old Testament passages, and, and this is Christ. This is Christ. This is his people. This is his kingdom. This is his plan. This is what he has done. This is what he is doing. And this is what he will continue to do until he comes back and, and, and marries heaven and earth together. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There it is. Go. Right? And was it easy for Abraham to go? Did he find it an easy path? But was his God with him all along? And and what was his assurance? That whoever opposes him will be opposed by God himself. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 through 7. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. Go and be faithful. Go, be fruitful and multiply. Go and follow the Lord Jesus. The cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning. But, but right? The Lord is in the heavens, sitting on his throne, looking down upon you, singing over you, delighting in you. His love is what you're going in the strength of. You're going in the strength of his love. You're going in the strength of his presence. You're going in the strength of his promises. And his promises are that, that he will be victorious and that you are part of that, right? What was read for us in the very start of this, this morning by Jared? Build your house on this rock. And then he goes on to say all the things that are going to come and try to knock the house down, right? And everybody loves the part where we're like, oh, we're built on a rock, yay. But have you been in a house that wasn't well built, that's a little shoddy, but its, it's foundations are solid, and it is rocked by a windstorm? Have you ever been in a house on, uh, near the sea? I, there was a house on the sea on this, pen, on this peninsula we were staying at, and I thought it was going to be like the Wizard of Oz. We were going to fly away in the whole house. I'd be like, here we go, Yellow Brick Road. And it was terrifying. And, and, and we forget this. The house built on Christ, the rock of Christ, will stand. But what will it endure first? But the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you so much for Moses and his words. We thank you, Lord, for your ministry in Egypt. We thank you for using Israel, Lord, as your means for blessing the world. We thank you for your promises to Abraham. We thank you for your promises to your people. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the yes and amen, Lord, who showed us how to overcome the world, how to be perfected through suffering, how to look to you for all things, how to depend upon you, Lord God, to rejoice in you no matter what comes because you are a loving father. You are well pleased with us. Lord, you are present here with us. And I, may that, I pray that that would strengthen us for the coming week. In Jesus' name we pray and amen.